Uh, this is Pals with Bill Wadman with uh, my new friend from the UK, Scotland, in fact, Sandy Robertson. How are you? Hi, hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. No problem. This is uh, this is very exciting for me because I've done, I think, 36 episodes of this show, and I've done all of them in person up until now. Okay. So doing one on Skype with you is sort of not what I normally do with this, but I thought it would be fun to to, to sit down and talk to you. now. You are a you are a teacher, an art teacher specifically, right? Yes, I am. And and okay, so where where in the UK is 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 your school? Like where where in the in the country are you located? For the people who are listening who, you know, need some geographical anchoring. Okay, so I live in a town called Bournemouth, which is right on the very south coast of England. Um, and the school I teach in is about 17 miles north of here on the way to Salisbury. So it's still in the far south. Of England, right in the middle. Uh, I I am a big fan of Salisbury Cathedral, as are many people. Yeah, and I think I and I did go once to uh, Longleat to go meet Lord Bath, so that was kind of fun. Which yes. is which isn't too far from you. No, not far at all. Yeah. Now wait, you're from obviously the north of the UK. How did you end up way down south? Um, I think at the time, uh, with all due respect to my lovely family, it was the furthest point away I could get within the British Isles. <laughs> Uh, and also, truthfully, I came uh, to visit uh, an auntie who lived here in Bournemouth and I stood at the edge of the ocean and I saw all these waves and surfers and the weather was hot and sunny compared to what I was used to in Scotland. And I just thought this has got to be the place for me. Yeah, this is paradise. It's like the equivalent of somebody <laughs> from from Wyoming going to Southern California or something. Well, the thing is, is actually where I'm from is so incredibly beautiful, so lovely, um, but it is very cold and very wet. And I think sometimes when you're from somewhere, there's always a sense that you want to seek out new things and new places. Sure. Yeah. Would you say the word damp uh, applies to where you grew up? <laughs> damp and drich. <laughs> Wait, what is that word? Drich. <laughs> Just means kind of horrible and gray. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is, is it really as... as tr- as as gray as they make it out to be in books and films and things, Scotland. Yeah, I I think it can appear that way. I certainly know in Glasgow because it's in a valley. You can sometimes feel as if the sky is a lid and the lid is fixed firmly on the top of the bowl in which you sit. Sure, it's a very strange and oppressive feeling. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that even in that gray weather, it's also extremely beautiful. And I have to say very inspirational for anyone who's creative or imaginative. Lots of folklore, stories, things that come out of Scotland and Scottishness that, of course, has its own particular cultural flavor. Sure. And I'm very grateful to it and for it. You know, it's that I've been to the UK a bunch of times. I have been to up to Edinburgh once on a road trip with my family when I was 10 back in 1985. But since then have not gone north of, you know... I think the Midlands, something, something like that, just because, you know, you'd have to, ha- you have like a reason to go up that far North. You know what I mean? Unless you like have the time to, to go up there, but I've always wanted to go. I want to go there. I want to go to lots of places in Ireland. I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, yeah. so, okay. So how did you end up? Well, first of all, when you were a kid, were you fascinated by art or was that a later discovery? 
I have always been fascinated by drawing, by photographing, by making things with my hands, sculpting, using things to construct other things. It's always been something I've done. And I think also maybe useful to say here about my personal history is that I grew up pretty much as an only child. So I have a really big family, but um, living at home when I was younger, I was very much by myself. And I think the world of the imagination is such a rich place. And especially when you spend a lot of time alone, it's something that really um, sustains you. Um, It's very nourishing, self-nourishing. Yeah, if you have time on your hands, you can kind of fall back into this creative world inside your head, that kind of thing. Yeah, I do wonder if, you know, if I'd had lots of brothers and sisters around me when I'd been very small, if I would have turned out differently. But that's like the impossible question, really. When I think about the things that I do and the things that I enjoy doing, love doing, they're all very um, solitary, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, so you said drawing, you said photography. Are you are you good with a pencil and paper? Like, can you sketch? And do you have a aptitude for that? Yeah, I think so. Um, it it is something that I find deeply absorbing. Okay. Um, and actually, I really enjoy watching other people drawing as well. Uh, I think that feeds into teaching. When you love something yourself and you're willing to uh, let it go or give it up into the, into the ether. The pleasure that comes from watching somebody else do that thing too is also kind of extraordinary. Sure. Yeah. There's a thing that's kind of big now in New York. And I think in a lot of places in the U S where like figure drawing, like for adults has become a thing where, you know, they'll have beer and pencils and paper and you, sit and you just, you know, they'll have a model come in and you'll just draw for an hour. Um, mm. That I think it's just a way some for some people to sort of let go. It's a little like meditation, I think, to some people. Um, yeah. Is, is that is that big over there, too? Is, is, is that become yeah, a thing? Yeah, I think it's something, rather than it being a particular fad or fashion, I mean, anyone who's been to art school is used to going in the life room sure. and drawing from life. It's something that is underpinning to a lot of or indeed any drawing I think anyone would do if they've studied drawing is to look at the human form and to to build those connections between what is seen, what is understood about one's own body, um, the interconnection of shapes. Uh, Of course, how the body moves, which you know all about uh, through your photographs. Yeah, from from time to time, I think about the way the body moves. Um, (laughs) You know, it's interesting to, I mean, the way you say that going to art school and we're going to get back to you in a second, but I want your, your art education opinion on this. It seems like we've taught art very similarly for the last 500 years. You know, that like that story that you're telling about somebody going in and drawing from life, doing still life, drawing people. I mean, this is basically what people have been doing since, I don't know, Da Vinci, right? You know what I mean? In, In a similar kind of way. Do you think that that requires some sort of updating or do you think that we are, that's the, like, that's the correct way to go and we're just continuing on and it's sort of, it's perfected. So why change it? I think uh, a roundabout answer would be to say that actually humans have always drawn on surfaces sure, uh, as a mode of expression, as a means of recording. 
And if our Paleolithic ancestors were doing it with such intensity, and we've continued to do it for 17, 18,000 years and more, then why would we choose to move away from it if it still continues to inform how we how we make things sure yeah well i mean look i i don't think it's going to change the way people do things but even the formal education model seems to still be that way you know it's like a, it's a it's a it's a it's a very uh studio based learning experience in hmm. our school um I suppose, yeah. I suppose learning, teaching and learning is kind of like in itself a collage effect. So taking things from different points and places, from history, from experience, and applying them, putting them into some kind of big mixing bowl of teaching and learning. Drawing is very important. I don't think there's a, a way to bypass it. And I, I don't think there should be uh, a sense that we ought to bypass drawing as an inquiry of yeah the artist or for the artist I, I as somebody who can't draw at all i'm so incredibly envious of people who can like yourself that it's yeah i mean i literally draw stick figures it's it's like amazing i have no aptitude for that um i don't see it that well, way i, I it's, you do draw with light bill yeah, yeah 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 but i mean but you know put a piece of paper and a pencil in my hand and have me sketch out some idea for a photograph i have and it literally looks like a four-year-old child with no aptitude made it it's funny. It's like I can take pieces and I can put them together. I can composite. I can retouch. I can do all of those things. But if I'm starting from a blank slate, I don't see it that way, which is probably why I'm a photographer and not a painter, right? You know, or, or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. All right. So yeah, you- I think there's a, there's a sense sometimes from, uh, well, even you speaking now, that there ought to be a, a complete set of skills that all belong to art that each person who claims to be any form of artist ought to be able to do. Yeah. And I have to say, I think that's a nonsense. I, I don't think that every particular uh, kind of doctor has to have a, there maybe is a foundation of what a doctor does, but every doctor specializes. The best doctors are specialists. It's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, so you're younger, you have a, you have aptitude for this. Uh, while you were growing up, did you know that you wanted to be an artist? Um, I think there wasn't a sense that I wanted to be an artist some point in the future. Uh, I think I, I think I thought I was an artist. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I mean, uh, professionally as, as, as a, as a, as a job, you know what I mean? To like be involved in art as, as a profession. And for I, your I thought, higher education and that kind of thing. Yeah, I thought it would be um, kind of impossible to do anything else. You know, there, there were so many things that I did like, um, in, even at school myself, things I enjoyed doing. But art was really uh, a guiding force and a shining light. Um, I didn't necessarily imagine myself as an artist spending my time always making my own art what I discovered early on is I also really really liked talking about art yeah and I also really liked showing other people how to make things or do things yeah um possibly because I'm quite bossy really (laughs) I I like that you said something uh exact word might have been like that you know it was impossible to see yourself doing something else and, you know, a lot of people use that when they talk about somebody who's going into, say, the arts or something that is traditionally the kind of stuff that a lot of parents would say, what are you, crazy? Don't go become an artist. You're never going to make a living. You're, you know, whatever the, the, the idea is. 
but that they always say, you know, can you imagine doing anything else? And it sounds like you really couldn't even imagine doing anything else. Well, I was very fortunate in that I um, had a lot of support from my family. Um, I felt very much that they endorsed the arts themselves. Um, I was lucky in that though I came from a family who are all academics, um, that there was always a sense that there was an appreciation of art. Yeah. Um, my dad studied architecture. Um, my mum has a keen interest in the arts, you know, works in, in theatre in Vancouver. You know, my, my family around me were always interested. They were interested in art widely, but also I felt interested myself in what they became interested in and what they could even see in me. A, a funny kind of cyclical thing happened where you enter a world of art making and people see you making art and they pass comment on it and they nurture you in some way or they give you confidence. Um, that's that's really powerful for a child. It's like a feedback loop, you know, exactly. they're supportive Definitely. and you're, you're making something and they're interested in the thing that you're making. And, and, you know, that makes you more excited about the stuff that you are making and goes back around. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're uh, lucky or, or th that, that you had a family that could see it that way. I think a lot of families don't see it that way, you know? Yeah. I encounter that in the parents of people I teach now. Yeah. You know, it's very obvious to tell if a student has the support of parents to continue studying art beyond my teaching, for example. Yeah. Now, now, so so when did you get into the art education world? Um, when I was an undergraduate um, at the Arts Institute, I was selected to participate in a pilot scheme at the time where undergraduates would teach evening classes to HNC and HND level students. Sorry, so, HNC, HND, I don't, what are those? So it's higher national certificates. So it's just a, a, a kind of accreditation, qualification. Okay. Um, and so I, I was part of that program and I really enjoyed that. Um, I enjoyed, again, this idea of speaking to people about art, finding out what they're doing and then somehow lending a hand in helping them develop ideas um, think about connecting to the work of other artists and yeah. influence. Do you feel as comfortable talking about your own work as you do talking about other people's work? Like if instead of you talking to me about my work, I was talking to you about your photographs and things, do you feel as comfortable talking about those as you do other people's work? Yes, but truthfully, few people do talk to me about my work now because my work has become really about talking about others work yeah 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 it, i mean there I, I mean even some of the pictures that i've seen that you've taken i think we still need to do and i need to do a print swap because there's some of those that i that i would love to have a print or two of so i mean i think that you even the the, the like the street stuff you shoot on your uh that you have on your instagram feed like i, I don't like i don't shoot like that so sometimes when i see people who do shoot like that i go I wouldn't even, I would have walked by there and maybe I would have noticed it, but I wouldn't have thought to stop and photograph it, you know? Um, so a lot of times like I'll, I'll see things that people make around of the world around them and I'll, and I'll, I'll wish that I had taken them myself. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but I just, I just don't, I don't think to do it. 
I mean, you also, at least in the work that I've seen of yours photographically, they generally don't have many people in them. So there's a question of like, why is that? Is it, is that a conscious decision from, from a compositional point of view or a, I'd rather take the moment when there, no one is in that space. And, and it's the space that I'm photographing that is interesting to me. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. I think I find um, empty places and spaces particularly interesting because yeah. they're very quiet. And um. I do tend to need quite a lot of downtime. I think that's linked to teaching. Teaching is a very noisy endeavor. You know, I'm surrounded every day by lots and lots of people. Um, I'm surrounded all the time by people who talk to me and obviously I'm talking a lot. And so when I make photographs uh, for myself, I really enjoy that quietness. So often the fact there's nobody there, it's, it's in one way not intentional, it's just that when I happen to be in that zone of making a photograph, I happen to be somewhere that I've sought out in some way because of its silence. Yeah, because you wanted to be there alone. Yeah. Yeah. And also I'm fascinated really by other people appreciating their, their aloneness. So uh, several years ago when I was in Japan and I was in the, at the viewing deck in the Mori Tower in Tokyo, um, I was... I hope he didn't think I was too weird that I followed uh, an older gentleman around who was obviously like me there by himself and kept sort of stopping and sitting places just to appreciate what it was like, not to be in the Mori Tower, I don't think, but to be there alone. Sure. Um, I couldn't help myself but skulk about after him and photograph him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, you're you're both. Did he see you? Did he definitely see you? Yeah, yeah. So there's did. this weird thing. Where it's like, where if that is what he was doing, <laughs> you're kind of ruining his moment by trying to capture his moment. It's like a Heisenberg yeah. uncertainty principle thing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I I have actually often thought about that particular. This is uh, a Japanese gentleman. Yeah, he was there <laughs> with a plastic bag and a book, and um, I found him. I found him very. Uh, lovely to to be near I know it sounds weird honestly I sound like such a strange person but I could tell that he was enjoying his alone time and I thought also that was really interesting somewhere like Tokyo which is so busy so bustling um I found my time there actually really nourishing for someone like me because even though it is so busy there's still a sense that there's a kind of self-containment a, a cultural self-containment almost that though it's busy there is quiet um but yeah the viewing deck of the Mori Tower was otherwise empty apart from me and this gentleman it, you know, and, the, uh, go ahead it, no I, I just found it uh, very soothing to be there alone. Also, it was I was up there on a really, really foggy day. You couldn't actually see anything, which is why it was probably not busy. Um, but for me, it was like the perfect day to go. <laughs> yeah. Soft light, no one's really. there. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, there's a lot of people. I think in New York, especially people who lived in New York for a long time, there's a sense that even when there are a lot of people around, you can be alone, just because mm-hmm. people just sort of generally ignore you unless they need to not ignore you. So there's people who will sit on the side of a street or on a chair in some of the places and just watch people do like people watching 
but they're effectively alone, even though, despite the fact that they're surrounded by hundreds of people, you know, mm. uh, and it's, but there's also, sometimes there can be a sense of hostility in that, you know, I noticed this when I go up to town to London and I'm on the tube and I sit there and people are studiously ignoring each other. Yeah. Um, but there's a, a, an element of hostility to it as well, which is don't talk to me. Do not interact with me. Do not force me into a situation in which I actually have to communicate with a fellow human. Do you think that's true or just do you think that that's how you perceive it? No, I do think I do think that's true. And I have uh, lots of times been on the tube and given my biggest megawatt smile to people and watched how incredibly uncomfortable that makes them. And it's not just like a one-time thing. You know, it would be you know, repeated, uh, a repeated exercise. Uh, and that's not to say that London is unfriendly because actually London is a fantastic city, a fabulous place to, to, to visit. Certainly I've never lived in London. Um, but there is this sense that that aloneness in, in very, very busy places can be quite guarded. Um, I think, I think in somewhere like New York that people think, we have so little personal space that we tend to respect each other's whatever personal space they do have. You know what I mean? So even though I'm sitting right next to you on a train, I'm not going to interrupt you unless I have to, because I know that we're already sitting where our, our thighs are already touching. You know what I mean? There's, there's that kind of sense. So yeah, it's interesting. It's like, it might be a, I wonder how much of that is a perception thing, but it is interesting to me that, that, you both like people, but you're also often happy alone. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting profession you got into. All right, so so you're in gra- you're in uh, undergraduate. You're ta- you're teaching some classes to the uh, mm. as as a as a side a side thing. And, yep. And were those how old were the people in those classes? So they were all. Um students older than me um and mature students evening classes at that time especially tended to attract older learners who were obviously at work during the day yeah um but but now you teach like 14 to 16 year olds somewhere in there uh 11 to 19 11 to 19 okay that's a big range 11 to 19 yeah i mean the mainstream setup here in the UK uh, a few years ago, you know, you had to stay in formal education until 18. Sure. Yeah. Whereas before you could leave at 16. Oh, they changed Actually, that. that's okay. really, Yeah, it's really good, I think, to push people to their learning, their formal learning maximum. Um, there's been a culture for a long time in this country for people to go to university immediately perhaps even if they're not necessarily uh, that keen on the idea themselves. It's a particular rite of passage for many young people. Um, But actually keeping students for an extra couple of years in a school environment is, well, I'm not going to say it works for everybody, but I think there's a lot of benefit to it. it. It tends to refine definitely refine what somebody thinks they may want to do at least for the next sort of five to 10 years of their life prepares them for that. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people in the U S who will go get a, 
liberal arts degree, despite the fact that they're never going to use a history or psychology degree specifically being involved in history or psychology, but that, you know, it's, it's, it's about learning how to think and learning how to learn and those kinds mm -hmm. of, of things for, for at least undergraduate college for a lot of people in the U S except for crazy people like myself who go and get a music degree, which is useless. Um, <laughs> So, well, honestly, listen, my specialism at art school was colored darkroom. Really? You know, like, what was the point of that? <laughs> Who knew in the mid to late 90s that everything I was learning would essentially become obsolete within 10 years? Did you ever do dye transfer prints? No. I always loved dye transfer prints. No. I, 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 I went to a, uh, a show at the Whitney of Eggleston this is like 15, 20 years ago. They had a big giant show. It was, it was enormous. It was beautiful. And it was all of these like 16 by 20 sort of sized mm. dye transfer prints. And they just, they looked like life itself. You know, they almost looked like they were backlit, okay. even though they weren't. And I was yeah. like, wow, that really has a look to it. It just, it just like they glowed, you know, there was such, such saturation in the colors and that kind of stuff. I was really fortunate when I started my degree I was the first cohort of students to be awarded the degree in photography at the Arts Institute. And what that meant is it was a very, very small cohort. There was only, I think, 28 of us that whittled down to 24 eventually. And so for especially the first year of our study, we had state-of-the-art facilities for the late 90s, yeah, the, all to ourselves. The latest and greatest. Yeah. And, you know, we had like one Mac in the corner and that was like, wow. Yeah. You know, Everything crazy. else was analog. Yeah. I mean, the, even in the three years that I was there, um, there were huge changes in the tech that was available. I mean, when I go back now, because I take my students back to visit, it's now called the Arts University. Um, I take them to have a look around the degree shows and I always stop in and say hi to people in photography who, who still work there, you know, have continued to be there and i'm amazed at the the facilities the extraordinary printers the fabulous wealth of um digital technologies that are available specifically to photographers sure i mean how how things changed i remember being over there in like oh six oh seven and so like less than 10 years from when you're talking about and there was places there was only like a few places in London that would process the certain mm. AGFA film that I was using. I was using Scala at the time. I was shooting black and white slides. And it's like there was one place left and they were going to stop processing that stuff that week or whatever. And they were the last place in Europe. So it's like a very short amount of time that that degree existed where people were actually using those skills out of it. What was it? Mm. What was the dark room like for you? What was the draw? I think it was that I had complete control over incremental color variation I found something almost holy about <laughs> approaching color and and breaking color down into component parts and I, I don't know it's really interesting because people who know me in person know that I'm they probably would not describe me as a colorful person uh I'm very flat line I wear lots of black I was and gonna gray. say she looks like she's wearing black right now guys <laughs> Yeah. But when it comes to what I see uh, outside of myself, color is color is just so profoundly beautiful to my eye. And in the darkroom, in that setting of of interpreting color and analyzing colors, 
and then individually crafting colors. I found that we talked earlier about this kind of meditative quality of drawing. There's an element of meditation in spending time with color. Is this why you gave me all that crap about the color usage in my own images? Because you're the one like obsessed to, with color. We just like to fill in here that it was not crap. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, okay, so wait, I see. I'm fascinated by. So you didn't find the same satisfaction in in black and white darkroom. It was really the color element of it that that drew you. I mean, did, did you find that? I always think about the the one of the big differences between analog and digital is like the whole the, 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 the fact that in analog you know if I told you to make five identical prints in the dark room that is a very difficult thing to do well in an analog dark room just because there's so much variation I mean especially with color like temperatures one degree different in the bath and everything is different you know that kind of thing um, did you do you find that I find that analog variability frustrating do you find it something that you can no she's shaking her head go ahead i know it's wrong to shake your head on on podcasts but um that 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 strange individuality the idiosyncrasies of a print in from a dark room like that that's the thing that breathes life into it and actually it also makes it even if the work itself is not painterly the process is very painterly there's something um, romantic about it, it sounds like. Yeah, and poetic, of course. Uh, and also, uh, just, again, the idea that in Color Darkroom, you're in complete darkness. You know, you're in complete darkness. And also, again, you're completely alone. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, we had individual booths to work. and um, So it's all by again, feel, which has its, the tactility of it all is like a whole other element. Well, it's something that I think people don't really register about photographs. Yeah. Is that a, a human hand has been there, especially if a, a photograph's been crafted in a dark room. Um, and it might not be visible in the way that it could be visible in a brush stroke or in a pencil mark. But absolutely, if somebody has held that paper, has smoothed it out with the palm of their hand and then freaked out that perhaps they've got some sweat transfer on the surface or something. <laughs> Nonetheless, the fact is that somebody has made contact with that and has been part of the process. The human is the human has made their mark within the process. Sure. Yeah. I'll tell you the 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 way that you uh the way that you talk about darkroom, it's just it's it makes me happy. It's like you 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 light up when you talk about it. It's interesting. Did you did you enjoy doing it uh, for your own images or for other people's images or both? Only for my own. Only for your own. Interesting. Because <laughs> you were trying to recreate what you saw in the place that you made the the negative in the first place or because you were trying to take that negative and go even further to make something that maybe wasn't even there. I think it was about um expressing something that's innately mine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So rather than it being a copy of what is seen, it, it becomes a manifestation of what I feel. Yeah, no, I get that. Do you think that an, uh, a, a photograph exists if it isn't made into a print? There are some people who are very purist about a physical object. Well, um, I, I haven't made a darkroom print 
a color darkroom print for 16 years, 17 years, a long time. We got to get you a darkroom. <laughs> Probably not a color darkroom, Bill. That would be we way can make it too- happen. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go um, go fund me you or darkroom <laughs> i do really like i really do like instagram i think it's a brilliant way for people who uh feel the need to express themselves visually to have a platform even if they have a very small following i think it's a fantastic way for photographers or people who like to capture things visually to network uh, to meet others, to make contacts. Yeah. Um, but simply that idea that a photograph can be uh, digital and only seen on a screen, it, it doesn't bother me. There's actually an element of it I like, which is the luminosity because of the because of the nature of screen-viewed yeah. images. Backlit, yeah. Yeah, and actually I remember being at a student exhibition five or six years ago uh, for the commercial photography degree at Bournemouth and uh, seeing a student hanging his light boxes on the wall sure. and thinking they were just so incredibly clever and beautiful. And I can't even remember what the actual photographs were, but what I do remember registering was the quality of the of the colour because of the light behind it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a whole thing. It's uh, I. I, 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 whenever I go someplace and you even see, you know, a uh, 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 transparency that's backlit, you know, it's just, it's like putting, putting a, putting a slide, an E6 slide film or Kodachrome slide down on a light box and looking at it with a loop. I mean, there's just something about it where it's just kind of like, is getting blasted into your eyes, you know, in a way mm. that it doesn't, if you're just looking at a print. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's like, it's, it's alive in like a three dimensional way. Yeah, I think that that sense of it being alive. I, I, as a child, you probably had it as well. They were the the viewfinders with the circular discs, and sure, you put yeah. them in. And I I had them as a child, and I had hundreds of discs that would take me to the Serengeti or to uh, New Zealand or to somewhere that for me was really really exotic, far flung, impossible in some way. And yet here I was, almost feeling like I was experiencing them because it was so close to my eye. It was binocular the, too. Yeah, the, the the peripheral vision was completely taken away. And yet here I was looking into something that, that was as if in front of me. Yeah. And again, because of the luminosity or the luminescence of the, the slide, um, that feeling of vibrancy and aliveness, really powerful. So when you're... You've got a class full of students, regardless of the age, although I'm sure age affects this. There must be some people in the class who either either have some sort of aptitude for it or work really hard towards it, and then others who are half-assing it or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like that. But like you have to, or or the ones who maybe are very excited about it, that you, in some sort of professional opinion inside your head, go, "Yeah, that person doesn't have the thing that they think that they have." as far as like promise or something maybe. And then somebody else maybe is really amazing and they don't even realize how amazing they are or, or, or what have you. Is it, is it difficult or, or a complicated process trying to deliver your attention in the places that, that you need to or, or want to? Does that make sense within the class? It does. I think my answer is different 
speaking today than it would be speaking at the same time last year because of our COVID restrictions and COVID protocols in school. More than ever before, I really have to teach from the front of the room. Yeah, And for me, that's a very strange way to teach a practical subject because my colleagues and I in art and photography are used to very much being amongst students, having students gathered around us, sitting next to students, flicking through books, drawing side by side, looking at photographs properly together. And that really can't be a thing at the moment. Um, So it is probably harder at the moment at the same time, I still hope that, um, I mean, I think when I give somebody my attention, they know I really am paying attention to them. Uh, I think that's a kind of quiet, soft skill, but a very important one is being able to make a person feel as if they are the still point of the turning world, even just for a moment to yeah. have your full attention, to be very good at listening. Do you think that the the students are reacting very differently. I mean, I'm sure different students react differently to the idea of doing it on Zoom or virtually. I mean, is that is there a real do you feel like you are gaining with some students and losing with others based upon the distance of of the learning? Well, I mean, I am actually in a physical classroom. At oh, the you moment. are. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but I uh when I first met you, I I was still teaching virtually. Yeah. Um But what I mean by teaching from the front is that normally in the classroom setting, we're up and about and moving around. We're not the teacher sitting at the desk at the front next to the blackboard. That's that's So the COVID restrictions, you actually can't go sort of over somebody's shoulder for for a while. No, we're we're, we're definitely not supposed to. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I mean, the truth of it is, is it's actually very hard to remember to not be with people. Sure. Yeah, I, I know all about it. Um. In the same way, it's very difficult when seeing a, a friend to not rush to them, to greet them and hug them. Yeah. You know, it, 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 our, our behaviors are really challenged by, by what we have to have in place to keep us safe. Yeah. Um, I desperately miss hugging. Like I'm a hugger and it's like not being able to hug anybody is really frustrating because there's like, there's a, I think that there's a, at least for some people, myself included, like human physical contact is like a big part of feeling okay. And so mm-hmm. not having that at all is, 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 is feels a little bit like you're in a desert, even though there are other people around you. you know? mm. And yet uh, for other people, you know, it must be a real, uh, like, like oh, a thank reprieve. God I don't need to hug everyone <laughs> all the time. No, I, yeah, I know, I know some of those people too. Cause you know, they don't feed. And I think that's deeper than the standard introvert, extrovert, you know, uh, definitions. Yeah. I mean, I, I was doing the, uh, what's it called? The Myers-Briggs, Briggs-Myers uh, personality tests. For yourself. And, it, yeah, my friend and I were, were looking at them. And I think I'm an INF. P something like that. Okay, I have an, I, I I know I know what it is, but I don't know enough about the answers to know oh, how that's the link so you can do it and, and then tell the world where you can broadcast on your podcast. <laughs> Put it in <laughs> my Twitter are. profile uh yeah, yeah. description. Um but a, a sort of personality type that is able and willing and likes to communicate, but also as you've already said, really likes to be alone to have time to oneself 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I it's like I used to my, you know, my wife works for an, in an office and she's working at home for the last nine months, or whatever it's been. And uh, yeah, that's interesting. Just not ever being alone, basically, unless I go out and go for a walk or something like that. Yeah. It's yeah. uh, I think this whole thing is. It's really interesting to think what this coronavirus stuff is doing to artists in general. I think some people have found it inspiring because maybe they have less, you know, professional work and more time to make stuff for themselves. And maybe they've been aching for that. Mm. There, there are those for whom, like myself, who's a portrait photographer, my job like inherently involves other people and I can't get close to other people to do my job so that changes you know what i mean i i i get less of what i find exciting out of art which to me is always the people mm. um i don't you know i will occasionally like last week i i pulled some leaves off a tree and did some photographs of some leaves um just as like a, oh hey look there's leaves let me see what i can make out of these i'll pull out a macro lens that i never use and see what i can do with it but I saw them. We'll see. She, well, ladies and gentlemen, she didn't comment on them. She saw them. She, saw, <laughs> she thought they were super crappy. But, um, but you know, but for me, I don't find it satisfying. Like I can make something technically nice. I think they're aesthetically good, but, but like it doesn't, it doesn't interest me much. You know what I mean? Making art in a nice, in, in a vacuum sort of for mm. myself that doesn't involve other people. That's that's less interesting to me. It just depends what your driver is. I mean, you you as you say, your driver is social. Actually, it's a social yeah. connection. Having that sense that you're looking and somebody's looking back, I suppose, or that there are, there's a dual pre- presence in what you photograph. Someone like me, obviously, photographing hasn't really been impacted. Uh, actually, it's probably been to my benefit because there's less people around. There's less people around, and also, I mean, strange things kind of unfold in these times. You know, I was walking up a street really close to where I live, and there is a church that has always been closed up, and somebody had just left the door open, and I went in. It was completely empty. It was being refurbished, taking the opportunity when there's no congregation, and um. You know, I find lots of pockets and spaces and places in which there's normally lots of hustle and bustle have, have been sort of forgotten about temporarily. Yeah. And um, in many ways, I wish I had myself more time at home to really kind of explore more of these places because actually they're, they are the things that really fascinate me in my own practice as a photographer. Do you, do you care if people see your images? Or do you make them for yourself? Um, I think I care more that people see my images now than ever before, which is strange also because uh, I make less images than ever before. And I I feel often that my images are less well-received now than ever before. What do you mean less well-received? How do you mean that? Well, I think it's probably the format in which I deliver them. I mean, before, as I said, if I was printing i was usually printing very large images and they were unavoidable as a presence the uh, the irony in that of course 
is that they become in themselves unavoidable presences, even though they're very, very quiet. And now, you know, I know that my photographs, when they are viewed, are consumed on teeny tiny little screens. That come out of people's I'm a little sad by that myself, of my own work. Especially mm. stuff that I've done that I think, you know, there are images that I've worked on that I know would look amazing at three feet, four feet, five feet across, you know, but mm. that will probably never be printed that big. Um, and our scene two inches wide where you can't see any of the detail or subtlety or, I mean, do you believe that the images, uh, certain images are sort of destined for a certain size presentation or print? Well, I think the limitations of people photographing on their phones in the first place has a huge impact on that. You know, I, I would suggest that most photographs that are shot, even on the fanciest phones, um, are destined then to be seen on phones. Yeah. I mean, I've made 11 by 14 prints. I know people who make 16 by 20 inch prints off of, off a, off a phone. I mean, they look good. I mean, if you and I, people who really know, go up and look at them, you go, Oh yeah, I could tell that was shot on a phone just because there's like a certain, you know, that sort of plasticky noise reduced kind of look that a lot of images like that can get. But, but I think that becomes much less likely. I mean, some of the, some of the phones now have got camera cameras in them that are far superior uh, in so many ways, you know, printing, printing big, for example, isn't uh, a negative now if you've shot on your phone because the pixel count's so high. But the resolutions can be amazing. However, I think somebody shooting on the phone in the first place is kind of saying that this is a phone photograph. Oh, doesn't well, that's mean it's not a photograph. Doesn't mean it's not a photograph. It doesn't mean it doesn't have its own quality and, and language of beauty. But it was born here and meant to be here? Sort of, yeah. I, I would need to spend some more time thinking about that. It's a really good question. Um, yeah, I never thought about it that way. I mean, I always saw it as I'm a little bit of a technical snob when it comes to photography in the sense that, at least in my own work, I would love to sort of sink myself. I'd love to dive into the amount of pixels I have. I want quality to spare whether or not I use it, you know? So even if it's only ever going to be used as a quarter page on a thing or digitally on a screen that is a few inches wide, it only needs to be, I don't know, a thousand pixels, but I'd rather have it be 8,000 pixels so that I know that if somebody ever said, I want to make a giant print of it for the size of a wall, mm. it's there. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, there's, there's a certain, there's a certain satisfaction that I get knowing that my image is sharp and that it's clean and that it's has depth to it dynamically dynamic range wise or, or, or color wise that regardless of whether or not if it ever gets used or viewed at that level, it's still there. There's still like a, a master copy somewhere that mm. is, that is, that is better. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's the thing that's made in some ways photographing more recently, quite disappointing because I've been caught short a few times where I've made really what I think have been very successful photographs, but I've only used my phone. And then I've come away from wherever I've been and I've wanted to print big. I've wanted to get that sense back that there is the physical object. Yeah. And I've gone to print it, I've had the prints come back to me and they've been just 
horrible, horrible yeah. thing that I would never want to put in a frame. Yeah. But had you um, been there and you had a really good camera in your hands, you could have made mm-hmm. something that was divinable, <laughs> as it were. Yeah. But I'm not a tech I'm not a technical snob the way you are. In the snob. Sense that, See, I didn't say snob. You're adding snob there. <laughs> uh no, I think you did. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> um I think even as a as a student of photography, um, I was kind of the last to the party for anything technical. I was driven entirely by what I could see. I know that sounds so silly and obvious. But I cared so little about tech technical stuff. As a color darkroom printer, you were not interested in technical stuff. No, I know it sounds crazy. One of the more technical pursuits in all of photography. Well, I know, but in the actual making of the photograph, in in conceptive moment, you know, I was never particularly interested in having like the fanciest camera. I was never. particularly interested in spending ages setting up my scene sure uh, and actually if ever i speak to people who photograph for example interior spaces in, in this similar way to me very often they are really obsessed with setup sure whereas my process is much much faster that doesn't make it better or worse it just means it's different to the people who spend a lot of time um, manufacturing their image. Well, especially people who are doing, yeah, people are doing architectural work and that kind of thing. I mean, they're, 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 they're some of the more particular people in the biz, you know? Yeah. And I really admire them. You know, I, my Instagram feed is so beautiful. Um, you know, following a lot of architectural photographers, following a lot of architects. Um, and, and finding such exquisite beauty in the shapes of of the built environment. Yeah, it seems like to you, it's shapes and angles and the way the light hits them. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's so strange because I I do enjoy talking about my work. But if somebody ever, ever was interested in why I like the way light hits an angle of a corner or a shadow makes its way across a room. I, I don't know why. And I'm really letting myself down here because actually I spend a lot of time saying to students, come on now, you need to really unpick this and unpack this and analyze it properly. And here I am. That, that sort of, that sublime quality is very, very difficult to get any real purchase on intellectually it's not intellectual at all it's interesting it seems like your your artistic mode is a little bit you don't like nailing things down you like the mystery is part of the attraction yeah but but i understand what you're saying like if if one of your students came to you and said I don't know. I just like the way the light comes across there. You'd be like, no, no, no. You need to give me more. I would be raging. I'd be like, come on now, get that sorted out. Let's use some fancy language to sort that on the page. You know, I really would. Although um, I had, I had had somebody else on this podcast. My friend AK was on this podcast and he's a, he's an architect and he was down in Dallas, Fort Worth at shoot. He's going to yell at me for not remembering the Kimball building, something like that. The Kimball Museum of Art. I think that's what it is. 
And it was designed by, see, here's another problem with me. It was designed by his favorite architect. And it's very famous for how the light moves around the, the, the structure because it's very bright down there in Texas and all the rest of it. Mm. And he said he went down there for a week and he just went back every single day. He spent his day at the museum watching light move around for a week. He would leave, mm. go have lunch and come back. And like, that was his, that was his way of sort of meditating on his own about what, what it is. And I'm sure he could analyze it further, but sometimes the more you analyze it, it's sort of like explaining a joke. You know, it's like the, the more you have to explain, the less funny it is. Maybe the, the more you have to analyze or, or want to analyze the, the, the less sublime something becomes. Mm, maybe. I, I really do recognize that sense of wanting to return again and again to kind of trace the life of the ephemeral qualities uh, as they as they morph and change again it's this idea of poetry visual poetry um in in reading i've always like finding out about the poetics of space really thinking about how um philosophy architecture and other visual art forms kind of collide at this sublime intersection and being a witness to it in any way to make a photograph or even actually just to make a memory without there being something else physical made is, is the thing that really brings me joy. Sure. I think, yeah, no, it's true. I also think there's an element back to the analog thing of, you know, time is always passing. The light is always changing. The way you see it is always changing. Like there's mm. no, even if you're trying to capture a moment, even that moment is, a half a second or a quarter second or whatever, you know, a one hundredth of a second in that one hundredth of a second, things have changed from the beginning to the end. You know, yeah. it's like, we're, we're trying to make something solid that is fluid. You said to me in our original interview with each other, um, something like, you know, it, it's easy to photograph beauty because yeah. it's already beautiful, something like that. Yeah, true. And I have to say that as an equivalent, um, uh, you know, an equivalence, I would say that when I visit spaces like art galleries um, or grand hotels, even places where there's a lot of room to move about, where people have already um, created an atmosphere, a deliberate yeah. a deliberate um they've thought about the light and everything yeah yeah i mean it's kind of like you photographing beautiful women sure <laughs> I mean, it's my it's my equivalent is photographing spaces in which the light is already considered yeah the space is already portioned and proportioned in a way that is going to be incredibly aesthetically pleasing it's why my family get really frustrated with me when we go to actual art galleries and rather than looking necessarily at the art on display, I'm much more interested in making my own art in the place in which the art Sits. is intended to be seen. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. I, you know, when you were saying the thing about being somewhere alone, we're members of the museum of modern art here in New York and you can go an hour early if you're a member and go into the galleries. And a lot of times, you're completely alone, mm. you know, next to this Picasso painting or Van Gogh painting mm. or whatever. And you're just like, I'm the only one looking at this right now. This painting that 
in an hour, 50 people are going to be looking at simultaneously. Mm. And there's something about being there alone with something that is special, you know? Yeah, but there's also a sense that in MoMA, definitely even in busy times, there are pockets of quiet. You know, I I really enjoyed that when I was there last, standing on stairs as other people moved on the floors above and below. But nobody was stopping on the stairs. And so I spent that lady standing on the stairs. (laughs) I'm the one obstructing the exit. You know, that (laughs) that that's me. Yep. Uh, hey, so tell me, tell me about uh, as we wrap up here. Tell me about your YouTube channel and the different shows that you do, and why okay. you do them. Well, I started uh, the YouTube channel in May, and it was really in response to uh, teaching from home. And uh, at school, we use a or we were using a program called Loom, where I could appear on screen alongside the PowerPoints that I was making to demonstrate how to um, emulate the work of photographers like Imogen Cunningham or Carl Blossfeld or later uh, contemporary photographers like Keith Dotson. But what I found is that I was sending Loom links to uh, my family and quite a few people said to me, these are, you know, these are quite interesting. And actually, if other people are at home in lockdown and bored, maybe this is a really easy entry level for people to get interested in photography. So I thought, well, I'll stick them on YouTube and see if anyone watches them. And I have a very modest uh, <laughs> viewer viewer following and subscribers. You know, I don't have very many. I'm always amazed at my daughter watches certain things on YouTube and I look and they've people who are photographing or filming rather things like the water going down the plug hole. They have like, you know, 10 million subscribers. And I have like a hundred and I'm spending hours uh, pouring a relative level of expertise into things that are quite thoughtfully crafted. Um, But I do love doing them. And I I actually think even though I'm back at school and even though I am back in the classroom and able to access my students directly, uh, I've enjoyed kind of moving the channel or the the direction of the channel much more to rather than me talking. It, it's actually about talking to others again, this thing that I, I really do love, this talking to you, um, talking to Ben Ashley and Dan Pratt. Interesting for me that I have interviewed you, Keith Dotson, both professional photographers, but I have also interviewed people who don't consider themselves to be photographers at all. And yet I find their photographs extraordinarily beautiful in some way. Um, and more recently, and coming up soon, yet more still, of Desert Island Art, um, where I want to speak to people who are not necessarily artists themselves, but who have an appreciation of art and find out what really makes them feel inspired in visual art. Hmm. It is, it, yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting the way you talk about art and the the knowledge that you have underneath. So it's, it's when you're talking to other people, <laughs> you, you know more about art than I do by an order of magnitude. So it's nice. Is talking that to, being dumbed by faint praise? Bill? No, none at all. No, no, no. Seriously. <laughs> like, I mean, even the way that you analyze and research my five desert Island options, you know, I like them for aesthetic purposes. And I generally know something about, those pieces of work, 
but I've never, I mean, I've done some reading on them just because they're favorites of mine, but I'm much less knowledgeable about them from an art history perspective than you are because that's kind of what you do. I do find it interesting though, that like even the people you were saying, the amateurs and the professional photographers that you have talked to, how different the work can be, hand the same exact tool to five different people and you will not get the same thing out of them. Now, granted, you're pulling out people who are, I think if you gave it to five different people on the street, you might have a harder time just telling them apart if they're not interested in photography. But people who have some sort of intent to what they're doing, how different, how differently the, the, their, 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 their process and their product are from each other, you know? Um, the fact that you can look at my work and you can kind of tell that it's my work because it now looks like my thing where mm. somebody else could take my camera and they're not going to shoot the same thing that I shoot, you know, or process it the same way or finish it or compose it. And I think that's one of the things people always say, oh, well, you know, in photography, it's all about the camera and like, it's not real art because, you mm. know, you know, and it's like, well, have you looked at photo photographs from different artists? Because they're drastically mind-bogglingly they're as different as painters paintings are even though they're all using the same tool that's the thing is that you know i I think photography has struggled to be born as an art yeah and and it's arrived now to gain to gain respect yeah right but it's arrived now hasn't it the only thing i wonder about it is that with the advent of um just this mass uh, of of photographs everywhere all the time consumed rapidly forgotten rapidly that no, actually it's an ocean of images yeah yeah photography starts to lose its power maybe um, I do think it's one of the most vital things that we can study as a human race now and I say this at school and I think my students often laugh at me about it they think I'm kind of like a bit of a zealot about this but I really think that I. I know that my subject isn't a core subject. It's not maths or English or science. However, to study art, to study photography particularly, is to study humanity, is to study life. Sure. And I, I, I think actually we need to do that with much uh, greater clarity and closer scrutiny than ever before. Yeah, I think that it, the way that people see and understand art and visual representations of things tells you so much about society that you live in and, and the, mm. the relative importance given to different things. And especially in today's world of, we have so many images and they are trying to tell you so much about how you're supposed to be. It's almost like having um, some sort of, I, it's like news IQ, understanding what things are, are, are believable and which things aren't, you know? Uh, mm. I think, yeah, no. But not I, only are photographs telling you what you're supposed to be, they are usually telling you what what we are. It's not what we're supposed to be. They're telling us what we are. Yeah. And again, this comes back to what we were saying before about the craft of photographs, is that the photographer's hand, the photographer's eye, the photographer's heart and mind is in every photograph that they take in the same way that every painter leaves an impression in the marks they make. Yep. So too do we with the light we choose, the the colors we um, express. But the whole thing is is 
endlessly interesting. Man, now we're gonna have to talk more about uh, darkroom stuff when we next time we do this. <laughs> I want to dig. I want to dig into the process. But, Remember, uh, I'm not a technical person, Bill. <laughs> I know, but you're you can <laughs> you can tell. I'm, I'll do some research, and then you can tell me how you see it. Okay. Uh, Sandy, thank you so much for taking the time. This is a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. Bum, 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 bum.